0: Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the
1: views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department.
2: Thank you. As we continue to deal with an increase in cases and death, it's important that we all pay close attention to our health and specifically our mental health. Dealing with the events of the past year and a half isn't easy and no one should have to deal with it alone. I encourage everyone here to find and reconnect with your support system and seek help from professionals. Taking care of our health should always, always include our mental health. Today we assemble recognizing the effects of this pandemic and what it has had on our mental health and our overall well-being. Additionally, we assemble here today recognizing the social and economic disparities this pandemic has further exposed. We recognize that communities of color are the most impacted by the effects of this pandemic. Many across the country are struggling to access quality care and information. And due to the fact that they're dying at alarming rates, it's imperative that communities all across America Take advantage of such opportunities as those being offered here today. We must continue to educate and support one another during this unprecedented chapter in the history of this planet. Furthermore, I ask you all to continue to seek information that is true and credible. There's tons of information out there that seeks to misguide, mislead, and misinform us. We have a great responsibility to vet that information that we can soon and that we spread. A very special thank you to the Alaska Black Caucus and their director, Seleg hart for both inviting me to speak and holding space for such important conversations to occur and to flourish. I hope that you all learn um, and that you can find uh, and, and leave here becoming empowered to help the community, especially communities of need during these difficult times. Thank you again for having me speak today and enjoy the summit.
1: Thank you again, Senator. We always appreciate hearing from you and wish you the very best in your times in Juneau. May they continue. I will now introduce and bring forward our former Lieutenant Governor and President of the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, Valerie Davidson. Valerie has had a wonderful, wonderful uh, time here in Alaska she is one of our heroes and she will give us the land acknowledgment
3: um, for this incredible opportunity to participate in the 3rd annual Betty Davis African American Summit so to, i'm originally from Bethel and so let me do a proper introduction um ataka um porter washington um, my Yupik names are and my English name is Valerie Davidson. Feel free to call me Val. Um, I'm originally from Bethel and uh, my mother's family is from Guiginlok. You can see my mother here and um, it's near Bethel on the coast. My father's family is which means they're not Yupik and they're from Port Orchard, Washington. I was also adopted by the Jackson family in Cake, and they are both Llinget and Haida, and they uh, gave me the Haida name, um, Jalna Higgins. And today, I'm not speaking uh, from Bethel, I'm actually uh, here in Anchorage, uh, the traditional homelands of the Dena'ina people. And I just wanna acknowledge the Dena'ina people for their incredible stewardship of this land since time immemorial where we are so lucky we have the pleasure to live work learn and play Um, i also wanted to just um acknowledge where we are in the pandemic lessons that we've learned that we've all really worked hard to protect our family members our communities and our state and Throughout this last year and a half, you know, we've learned that we are really strong, we're resilient, and we take care of each other. And in what has been a really tough year and a half, it's also been really important to extend grace to each other. Because sometimes we can look really strong on the outside, but the truth is, we are all hurting right now. We've all lost someone that we know, and we have been unable to gather to grieve in our normal way. And people are doing the best that they can under really really challenging circumstances so i really appreciate everyone who extends grace to each other because we are tired um, we've been telecommuting while taking care of relatives being teachers to our kids and you know i'm an early childhood teacher by profession that was my first career and i was so grateful that my kids were older because i cannot imagine being having holding down a full time job and being a kindergarten teacher or a first grade teacher to my child at the same time. The good news is that you know we bounce back and we always move forward to address future needs. And we've seen that time and time again. When we talk to each other out loud and openly about what's happening in our communities, we have the opportunity to um, to take action. And the fact that. The BIPOC community is being impacted by COVID-19 more than every other Alaskan is a problem. And I also wanna acknowledge that where we are is we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And um, I'm a fisherman um, every summer. And you know it's like, it reminds me of being out in the water in a storm or when, the water, when, the, when it's rough. You know We can see the beach, which really brings us hope. But we also know from experience that we need to steer clear of the rocks and the stumps that are under the water that we just might not be able to see, and so we need to consider other things right now. Like we're hitting the regular flu season, so I would encourage everyone to get your regular flu shot in addition to the vaccine. I got my flu shot uh, a week ago, Friday, and we're also coming up on RSV season, and our elders and our babies need our protection, and. Um, You know, right now, healthcare in Alaska is in a really fragile state. And I will tell you what I'm hearing from people who work in healthcare is that when last year at this time, people felt they had the support of the community, but there's so much information out there that, that people are, some people unfortunately are beginning to turn on healthcare workers. And I just, I'm just dumbfounded by that. And, um, So here's, in the event that it's helpful, I just wanted to share a couple of things that I'm doing to protect me and my family. I'm assuming that everyone that I come into contact with is COVID positive. I just assume that everyone I see is COVID positive and I'm acting accordingly. I wear my mask everywhere I go. I'm not wearing it right now because I am alone in my house. I'm maintaining social distancing and social good social um, practices, so much so that my sister was in town for the last two weeks. My brother was in town this last week, and they are two of my favorite people in the world, but neither of them came into my house. That's how careful I'm being. And I'm not washing my hands frequently. I'm washing my hands constantly, constantly. Everyone in my house is vaccinated. And if you know somebody who's hesitant, I would just encourage you to ask them to talk to their healthcare provider because there's so much disinformation out there on social media and everywhere, really. You know, last year we were able to slow the curve here in Alaska by masking, by hand washing and distancing. And now we have the added protection of the vaccine and we have the chance to determine how this story ends and I appreciate so much the incredible leadership of the Alaska Black Caucus to host this critical conversation right now in this time of our pandemic and I'm so thrilled and I'm just honored to be able to join in celebrating the legacy of the late Senator Betty Davis who was always willing to have the hard conversations and keep us moving forward. I learned a long time ago that people really will do the most amazing things under the most impossible of conditions as long as we have the right reasons. And children and families and communities are always the right reasons. And so thank you so much for all that you are doing for our children, our families, and our communities. We appreciate you so much, Juliana.
1: Thank you for those words of wisdom and sharing, and thank you for the acknowledgement of the land. I will now ask a member of the Anchorage Health Department COVID-19 Advisory Committee to come forward to bring you greetings, Tafi Tolafoa. Tafi is an extraordinary person who works hard every day. She is a part of the Covenant House staff and uh, does
4: amazing work. Tafi, please. Taya Manuya, Mbula, the day, Aloha, and good morning. First, I would like to thank you, Celeste, and the Anchorage, um, the Alaska Black Caucus, for the invitation to speak. I would also like to um, thank the past and present leadership of the health department, the Anchorage Health Department, for acknowledging that we do need, that they do need help, and calling on the community, especially the involvement of the black, indigenous, people of color community to find solutions. The experience that I have in the committee has proven that there is enough space for all of us to create solutions in our community, and that we we have our own communities to look to to come up with solutions. For so long, we have continued to other one another. COVID-19 has really shown that it is time to bridge. It is time to bridge racial, color, gender, sex, ability, age, and religious affiliations. it's time to come together as a community. The existence of the Anchorage COVID-19 Vaccine Committee shows that we can come together as a community and create a loving, equitable, an inclusive physically and mentally healthy Anchorage. Thank you, Manuela.
1: Thank you so much, Tuffy. And now, if you will please stand for the national anthem for us, Lift Every Voice and Sing, sung by Trinity Colvin.
5: Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven, Ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song. Full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won.
1: Thank you, Trinity. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Again, appreciation to all of our greeters as we start the third Betty Davis African American Summit with this year's emphasis on COVID-19. And we thank the Nenina people on whose land we have been given the privilege to visit, live, and enjoy. For today's session, we have assembled five of our country's most distinguished medical panelists to present on a topic that has captured the world for the past 18 months, COVID and its variants. Dr. Jay Butler, Dr. Ann Zink, Dr. Michelle Andrasek, Dr. Reed Tucson, and Dr. Mary Owens, and as you see, appearing in our favorite format, virtual via Zoom. Dr. Michelle Andrasek is a clinical health psychologist and senior staff scientist at the Fred Hutchinson HIV vaccine trials and COVID-19 prevention network. She is an affiliate clinical professor in the departments of global health and occupational and environmental medicine at the University of Washington having received her PhD in clinical health psychology from the University of Miami. Dr. Jay Butler is the Deputy Director for Infectious Disease at the Center Center for Disease Control, known in our everyday language as the CDC. Dr. Butler has 30 years experience in increasing complex public health leadership and management positions having spent many of those years in Alaska in state health leadership positions. Dr. Butler received his medical degree at the University of North Carolina with residency training at Vanderbilt and served in public health positions at the federal, state, and tribal government levels. Dr. Ann Zink, if you've lived in Alaska for the past year with access to the media, you know the name. Dr. Zink has been the face and name of COVID information in Alaska and is considered our go to authority for the facts. Dr. Zink was appointed chief medical officer for the Department of Health and Social Services Public Health Division in August 2019, having joined DHSS from the Matsu Regional Medical Center, where she served as emergency department medical director. Dr. Zink received her medical degree from Stanford School of Medicine. Dr. Reed Tuxen is managing director of Tuxen Health Connections Limited Liability Corporation, which is a vehicle to advance initiatives that support optimal health and well-being through the intersection of individual health promotion and disease prevention using applied data and analytics. Dr. Tuxen was formerly Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer, Medical Affairs for United Health Group and served as Commissioner of Public Health for the District of Columbia. Dr. Tuxen is a graduate of Howard University and Georgetown University School of Medicine. Dr. Mary Owen is a member of the Clinkett Nation and graduated from the University of Minnesota Medical School and North Memorial Family Practice Residency Program before returning home to work in her tribal community in Juneau, Alaska. In 2014, Dr. Owen returned to the University of Minnesota Medical School as director of the Center for American Indian and Minority Health, where she where her work includes developing and managing programs to increase the numbers of American Indian and Alaska Native students entering medical careers. Each panelist will address a specific COVID topic in their presentation. And once completed, we will have questions that we have some from the audience and some prepared for from staff. Then we will end with a closing statement. We will start with Dr. Butler, who will address the most current and national issues as we enter this flu season and continued concerns with COVID, Delta, and more. Dr. Butler.
6: Great. Thank you, Jewel. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Uh, Greetings from uh, Atlanta. And I just want to start by saying what an honor it is to be able to participate uh, in this uh, event today. Uh, As we think about uh, some of uh, what Celeste was saying earlier about learning to be kind to one another. I really do think of how Senator Davis uh, showed respect and kindness and how she interacted with people. And it was just such a pleasure to be able to work with her in the state legislature. She also had a remarkable wit. Uh, I uh, had the pleasure of uh, attending a Medicaid seminar with her and we sat together on a red eye down to Chicago at the uh, opening of the meeting, there was a brief reception and uh, she clearly wanted to be uh, talking to a number of people, but there was one person who kept trying to get her attention. I came uh, over uh, to her and this person said, uh, oh, Senator Davis, have you met Dr. Butler? And she just looked at him with a very straight face and said, yes, we spent the night together last night. And I just looked at him and said, that's true. And Anyway, he went away. So what I want to do is start by framing uh, a discussion of the state of the pandemic by talking about uh, where we were two years ago. Two years ago, none of us had heard of COVID. None of us had heard of SARS coronavirus 2, most likely because that virus may not have even existed uh, at that time. So as we talk about where we're at in the pandemic, what we do about the pandemic, I think it's important to recognize that a lot has changed in the past two years. Uh, In fact, I uh, oftentimes like to tell the story of uh, in early January of 2020, uh, scrambling up the Butte with Dr. Zink, I think twice during our climb, uh, my phone went off with uh, updates on an evolving situation in Wuhan, China. And uh, we all know uh, what that ultimately led to. Unfortunately, now over uh, 45 million cases of COVID in the United States, we are on a nationally on a downward trend, fortunately, down to about 65,000 cases a day on average over the past week. Uh, In about 6,000 hospitalizations a day, sadly, still, roughly 1,000 Americans lose their lives to COVID every single day. And it reminds me again of one of my favorite uh, sayings in public health As we talk about these numbers, is these numbers reflect people. And the statistics are people with the tears wiped away. And I think every one of us can name several people who have died of COVID over the past two years. There is some good news. Uh, I wish I could say it's good news for everybody, but there is some good news. Those national trends are coming down right now, and so that's very positive. There are still some parts of the country that are really getting uh, some of the highest rates of COVID to date. Alaska is one of those. North Dakota, Idaho uh, is a region the, the Western mountain states are experiencing very high rates of COVID still. Uh, The state of New Mexico, about a week ago, had to go to crisis standards of care, just as we had to in Alaska several weeks ago, to be able to deal with the influx of hospitalized patients. It's also important to recognize that uh, the COVID pandemic has shined a bright light on the health inequities in our nation. Very early in the pandemic, I heard uh, someone on one of the, the table networks, talking head, if you will, talking about how uh, if this became a pandemic, it would be a great equalizer because we'd all be in the same boat. But I think we all know, we all knew then, too, that uh, that is the wrong analogy. Uh, We're all at sea in the same storm, a very rough storm. But some of us have seaworthy vessels, some of us have survival uh, suits. Uh, but too many of us uh, have water up to the gunwales and are about to go down. And that just is something that we cannot continue to tolerate. Um, also, as we look at people who are impacted, obviously uh, people of color have higher rates of disease and have had been disproportionately impacted by the risk of hospitalization and death, but also people experiencing homelessness, people who are incarcerated, people with disabilities, all have been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The variants have been an issue that has been a a challenge. And I think the Delta variant is uh, one that we're all familiar with now. Uh, I'm sure our Atlanta-based airline wishes uh, we'd had a different name for the variant than Delta. Uh, but it shows that this virus continues to change. Just as it changed to be able to infect humans in the past two years, it also continues to adapt. And we monitor these uh, emergences of new variants of virus to determine whether or not the disease they cause is any different. Could be milder, could be worse. Whether the transmission changes, is it more infectious, which has been a big challenge with the Delta variant. Does it affect our therapeutic measures, uh, such as monoclonal antibodies? And lastly, does it impact our prevention measures, particularly the protection afforded by vaccines? Vaccines are actually probably one of the best news items in the entire pandemic. Uh, When we went through a lot of the pre-pandemic planning, particularly for influenza pandemics, in general, it was expected that it would be nine to 12 months before a vaccine might be widely available. For a number of reasons, uh, building on technology that had been developed over the past 20 years, the, uh, the COVID vaccines were available uh, very rapidly and had efficacies really beyond my wildest dreams prior to their, their use. So far, over 400 million doses have been administered in the US. Uh, over 6 billion globally. And now more than half, 57% of Americans have been fully immunized. And more than 95% of people over age 65 have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, the, uh, The things that I think we'll anticipate in the future, I'm sure you've heard the news about booster doses of vaccine to be able to guard against waning immunity. And I think in the next couple of weeks, we'll learn much more about availability of vaccines to protect uh, people uh, or children age 5 to 11. Some of the recent data shows that uh, vaccination not only protects uh, you, but uh, in households where people are immunized, there's lower risk of transmission to people who are not immunized. Uh, I think the the case of uh, General Colin Powell, though, is very instructive. Uh, We know that the efficacy is not 100%, and also uh, breakthrough infections do occur, and particularly in people with underlying illnesses uh, or who are advanced in years. So I think uh, his family has been very open about the risk factors that he had for COVID, and I think it very nicely underlined the importance of the other measures to protect ourselves against COVID. Uh, including masking, as uh, Val Davidson mentioned earlier. I uh, always like to show uh, for Alaskans my camo mask just in time for for moose season. And uh, particularly for people with higher risk of disease, still social distancing is important. So as we talk about vaccines, let's keep in mind, though, that while protection isn't 100%, the risk of infection is six-fold lower and the risk of death is 11 fold lower. Those are odds I wanna play. So I, uh, I couldn't quite get vaccinated as quickly as Dr. Zink did, but uh, I certainly rolled up my sleeve as quickly as I could. And, uh, I look forward to uh, maybe someday uh, getting a booster dose doses. Uh, we learn more about expanding the indications for boosters. So I started by talking about two years ago. Let's look at two years from now. What might we expect? Well, it's hard to make predictions, particularly about the future, but hopefully uh, we can uh, actually be meeting face-to-face by then. Uh, COVID will likely still be among us. It will not be gone. I think I'm quite confident that uh, this virus is uh, with us to stay, but I do think we'll have more options for treatment including uh, some new antiviral drugs that are under review right now. I think we'll have more options for an easy diagnosis. I think we'll learn more how to live in this new reality. For instance, we're learning a lot more about being able to open and keep open schools. Some of the work that CDC has been doing, working with uh, local school districts, have included uh, test to stay, uh, which is a way of monitoring for COVID infections among students so that they don't have to be quarantined after every single exposure. Uh, We've also found though that masks are an important part of protection in a school environment. I think we'll also learn at a broader level about other aspects of health in America. Uh, For one thing, we will learn, we have learned, and I think we will act on the fact that racism is a determinant of health. I've been a white guy a long time, and I think I can say that it is time that we talked about racism as a social fact, not just a personal choice or an attitude that individual people have, but that we have to address structural racism if we're ever going to address the health inequities that we suffer in this country. Uh, Celeste, in the opening, also talked about the importance of health. Now that we have a threat to health, we're talking in ways that I think are very encouraging about how to improve health. So hopefully these lessons are learned and I think there's uh, no shortage of uh, publications on lessons learned. That's great, but the real important question is, will we act on those lessons learned? Uh, and I, So I wanna close just by encouraging everyone, let's act on those lessons learned individually and let's act on them as a society. At the individual level, if you're not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Uh, As uh, Val Davidson mentioned, the importance of a flu vaccine. I got my flu vaccine also. Uh, As well as uh, masking, particularly indoors in crowded areas. And uh, keep in mind the importance of testing so that uh, you can know if uh, you're potentially an infectious risk to others. Let me close again by saying uh, thank you. It's an honor to be able to speak to you today and Jewel, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Butler. Always good to hear from you and the sharing of information, especially what's happening there on the national level. Now we will go to Dr. Zink to give us the latest updates on the virus and data
7: from the state of Alaska.
1: Are things improving, staying the same or getting worse? Dr. Zink.
7: Thank you so much, Jewel. Thank you to the amazing panel I get to be on here. Thank you, Celeste, for all of your hard work and advocacy. What an incredible uh, opportunity to be here to celebrate a true state hero and really a national hero and to address such an incredibly important topic. Um, So I normally live on the lands of the United people, but I'm currently on the lands of the Cheyenne and also want to recognize not only the land, but labor History that has brought us to the place that we are today. Uh, And I'm just very grateful to be here. I have to say, Celeste sent me a whole list of fantastic questions. And so I put together a PowerPoint presentation because there was more data than I could easily share in a few words. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen to make sure that I can uh, provide as much information as I possibly can uh, in a timely but uh, uh, also efficient way so that we can uh, talk a little bit about where we're at in the state of the pandemic. Can you guys see those okay? Great, okay, fantastic. So I'm gonna go ahead and just kind of go through these. Thank you to everyone in the state who's continued to listen to me. I'm sure you're familiar with some of these slides at this point, uh, but wanted to kind of talk a little bit about where we're at as as a state with COVID-19. As it's great to have Dr. Butler start off and talking about the national perspective. I added some additional data from a national perspective on some of the race and ethnic uh, uh, data points that we're seeing currently at this point. So here you can see when we're looking at uh, American Indian or Alaskan Native people, Asian, Black, or African American or Hispanic, you see different uh, disproportionate rates of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths uh, overall. And we can talk more about these kind of later in the panel. I always really enjoy these uh, charts where they look at the underlying population as well as the discrepancy because I think it helps to put into context data matters uh, and having accurate and truthful and timely information helps us to address the pandemic, helps us to address inequities and helps to see things in real time so we know how to pivot and how to change collectively uh, to make sure that we're really doing the mission of, of what our team is here to do and that's to promote the health and well-being of all Alaskans. So here you can see uh, that if you're looking by cases by race and ethnicity, that red graphs on the left side versus deaths, which is on the blue side, uh, particularly our Hispanic uh, friends and family, really have uh, disproportionately experienced uh, a lot of cases. But interestingly, when you compare to deaths, it's you know really seeing a lot within the Black population as well as the African, excuse me, the uh, Alaska Native population. But looking at these national data is one trend, it's something else uh, to look at a state trend. So a couple more data on, state, on national trend and then we'll switch over to state trends. Here you can again look at thanks to the CDC who has been continuing to adjust all of their data fields and making it easier and easier for us to visualize on a state basis as well as a national basis. It's been incredibly helpful as these uh, data tools have improved over time. And as Dr. Butler just mentioned, it's one thing to see it. It's another thing to do something about it. Um, but having the support from the federal government and from the CDC to visualize the problem, to understand where we're at, helps us at the state and local level know how to respond. So here you can see, again, different race and ethnicities. And this looks at weekly cases per 100,000 population. Over time, you can see, again, that big fall, early or midwinter kind of peak there. And then you can see the current one that we're seeing right now. And in that kind of November, December peak, you saw really a, just a really disproportionate burden in our Alaska Native and American Indian population, as well as our Hispanic. And with this current wave, we see a similar trend there amongst our Alaska Native uh, population, but we kind of see the Hispanic population decreasing Interestingly, the Asian American population kind of always just hovering right around the bottom uh, there. And you can kind of see the different races and ethnicities by cases. And here's the same thing, but when you're looking at um, just when looking at a little bit differently, looking at the the weeks overall uh, and then looking at uh, dates. Here's looking at Alaska specific data. This is the stuff that comes from our dashboard. This is all downloadable. We try to make this as transparent and easy to look at as possible. So this looks at the rate of hospitalizations by race and ethnicity across the uh, across Alaska. And here you can see that particularly our native Hawaiian friends got hit the hardest, particularly last summer, and that's continued throughout the pandemic, followed by our African, uh, by the um, American Indian and Alaska native people. And you can see kind of looking at multiple races, white population, and Asian and Blacks, so you're seeing some different trends in Alaska state data than you're seeing in national data. And there's different reasons for this. And I think it's important that we look at both local state as well as national trends to have the most accurate picture that we can. Here's looking at deaths. Uh, and here again, you see a disproportionate burden um, amongst a Native American and Pacific Island population followed by American Indian and Na- Alaska Native population. Another way to look at this, if we're going to look at one specific uh, population is here, when you're looking at specifically um, the multiple different races, I went ahead and looked at just specifically the black population here. I also want to highlight on this graph, the yellow bars on the top, and that is the unknown data. And so particularly for Alaska, when we have a small population set and we're getting smaller and smaller when we're looking at things that are more specific, such as uh, deaths or data that has a lot of inaccuracies in the data, such as the number of cases. If that information isn't filled out by a testing site or isn't reported uh, in, in a way that we can actually see, we get increasing numbers of unknown uh, and that makes it harder and harder to estimate the potential burden on any specific population. So going kind of from right to left, kind of the opposite direction, you can see just the population as a whole with 4% being Black uh, here in the state of Alaska. And you can see that about 3% of our hospitalizations have been African-American Black population, 2% of our deaths in cases about 2%. Uh, And so you can see, but again, with those cases, uh, you have some uh, really large uh, component of unknown data in there. So again, a little bit of a different trend than what we're seeing on a national trend. Um, And I think a lot of this uh, has to do with a lot of the partnership uh, and community. And and just, you can see this conference right here and all the work that's being done uh, to make sure that people understand the risk of COVID moving forward. Here's some additional uh, information, just looking at kind of, again, at Alaska-specific data. So this is looking at vaccine rates by race. Uh, Again, if we don't have the data in, it's hard for us to report it back out in a meaningful way. That's why these arrows are on the red side that show unknown race. I think there's a couple different reasons for a lot of this unknown data, particularly at the beginning. Um, there was just a real emphasis on trying to get people vaccinated as fast and as fair as possible. And so we had to make some uh, risk benefit decisions on were we not going to allow people to vaccinate if they didn't enter 100 percent of the data fields. Some states did opt to do that and they have fantastic data as a result of it. Uh, but we decided that that burden on healthcare workers and on vaccinators was more than we wanted to put on them. And we're willing to risk some uh, discrepancies and some lack of clarity in the data in order to try to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible and just our lack of, of vaccinators, honestly, in the state. Uh, so here, when we're looking uh, at the age, the twelve plus uh, uh, twelve plus age have received one or more dose. Um, you can see kind of the overall population, and you can see the number of people who've been vaccinated. So again, uh, that kind of black population here, we have uh, nine uh, nine thousand two hundred uh, people who have gotten vaccinated within that population as a whole. And then you can see if we're looking at the municipality of Anchorage specifically, uh, six thousand two hundred or so Um, so just uh it's interesting to see we still have a ways to go you can see the estimated population in each of these categories and how we still have a ways to go to increase our vaccine rates uh, in these eligible populations overall hold on let me just switch screens here okay um had a question specifically on looking for alaska department of corrections data um and you know the thing that we hear most consistently from the department of corrections Uh, is that our DOC facilities are really a representation of the communities in which they live and they serve. And so if it is a DOC facility in an area that's highly vaccinated, the inmates as well as the correction officers are highly vaccinated. And if it is in a community where people uh, choose to have low vaccine rates, uh, and we tend to see both the inmates as well as the correction officers have low vaccine rates overall. So here is inmates kind of looking at first dose, full vaccine as well as series complete and how many inmates the facility Kind of following similar trends again compared to what we see across the state as a whole. So what's driving some of these disparities uh, here in Alaska and other places? So when we looked at Alaska specific data, um, this came from surveillance data where we're actually asking people kind of their underlying health factors. All of these surveys have some significant uh, limitations in their data, uh, I keep saying data because I feel like we need more data and we have to keep finding ways to get it easier and better, not just survey work. There's so many biases that can enter in so much of this. And then it becomes really hard to know uh, what's useful and what's meaningful. But this is the best data that we have uh, as of right now. So this is looking at the, the is kind of survey based data. And here you can see that 67 percent of Alaskans, this does not include age, had one or more serious health conditions that may lead them to higher risk of hospitalization or death. So sometimes when people would say, well, why don't you just keep people who are at risk uh, kind of off to the side, aren't they? Well, it's 67% of us uh, just with underlying health conditions. If you add age uh, to that as well with 65 and above, uh, then you get up to 72% of Alaskans have one or more risk factor uh, for a severe COVID-19. And here then looking at Alaska specific data, looking by race, looking at underlying health conditions. And you can see that kind of mean is 66% here in the state of Alaska. You can see that our Alaska native and American Indian uh, population has higher rates as well as our black population of underlying risk factors compared uh, to other populations. Interestingly and kind of problematically in this data, you know, Pacific Island and Native Hawaiian population isn't pulled out specifically. So there's Asian, there's multiple races. So again, uh, there are some subset data that can be really hard to see in here, and then it's hard to know what the impact is. So if you don't have similar data fields to compare across similar data sets, it becomes really hard to understand what are the underlying factors that are fitting uh, into it and causing different discrepancies uh, in the outcomes that we're seeing so again, some of the data challenges uh, I get asked all the time, Well, why don't you tell us how many people were symptomatic? How come you can't tell us how many underlying health conditions? Well, how about what's the vaccine status at how many people you listed out today? Um, we have a very complex and non-uniform healthcare system and I sometimes joke with my healthcare providers that if you think uh, electronic medical records are hard in the hospital, you should try state IT. It's a whole nother level of complexity and inability to function and work together to actually be able to see data sets, to be able to understand what's happening. I oftentimes feel like uh, responding to this pandemic has been like swimming upstream, except I've got weights on my ankles and wrists, and that is the weight of dysfunctional IT that makes it impossible to see where we're going and how to respond. If there is one thing that I wish we could change in this response, it was to have uh, better information and IT systems so that we could have reliable, useful information to be able to act on in real time. At one point in the pandemic, we hired an entire team and took over the entire eighth floor of the Frontiers building full of scribes, people who typically work in hospitals to do data entry, just to try to do data entry more quickly. Um, We just had literally dozens of people just trying to enter data from one source to another. We at one point hired National Guard to sit in our lab to literally enter a positive lab into the case contracting information, into the information that could go to the CDC for reporting and into our epi team, uh, because we had no other way to make these IT systems connect. It's unbelievable to me that I can go to another country and I can take my ATM card and I can slide it through and they can figure out a transaction between uh, the different currencies. I can get my cash right there. They can take it out of my secure bank account it's individual to me, it's connected to this global market, and I can have my money and I can go forward, but I cannot even see what cases or anything about them here in the state as I'm trying to respond. I I think it is complete failure of our system uh, to have this lack of ability to understand where we're at. So it's a little bit long-winded of a lot of bullet points on this topic, but uh, it's something I feel passionate about, something we need to, to address That way we can know better on how to be able to address our our system, how to improve our health, uh, and be much more efficient, uh, be cost effective, uh, but ultimately get better outcomes for people at the end of the day. Another data point that I just wanted to highlight here, this is not Alaska-specific data. We, again, don't have great Alaska-specific data on many of these things, and so this one I think really need to look at our national trends And this is uh, COVID-19 and pregnancy. So this is looking specifically at uh, people who have been fully vaccinated for COVID-19 and who were pregnant overall by race and ethnicity. I think these are some incredibly scary numbers uh, to me. We know that pregnant women are much higher risk for hospitalization and severe death with COVID-19. And not only are they then at risk, but also their unborn child is at risk, but also their family, you know, thinking about losing that caregiver or that mother in that family who may have other children as the spouse and what that the, the generational impacts that that can have overall. And here you can see just low vaccine rates, you know, less than 50% across the board, but you can see that bottom line on there uh, is the black population. So lowest amongst the black population across the country and highly concerning and and, an area that we've been really trying to focus on overall uh, because the the chance to not only impact one life, but many, many lives as well as generations. And so here's some more uh, information. The uh, CDC did put out a health action alert along this line and why we continue to try to get this information out. And this is where a lot of misinformation is targeted and, and what makes it really challenging to kind of break through some of the noise. I also want to make sure that we're mentioning and honoring some of the legacy that has gotten us here. I don't know if people saw, but recently the WHO uh, proclaimed that it was Henrietta Lacks a a, a day. Um, Her history and this history and and so much of her history, I think, is so impactful and, and meant... It really, I think, explains a lot of how we end up getting here as a country and where we're at. Um, if you have not read The Mortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, it's a fascinating uh, read about the social inequalities and racism within our healthcare structure um, that I think plague us today. It's also a really interesting read about cell cultures, and I think leads to a lot of the information that we're talking about right now as people have hesitancy about how vaccines were studied and tested, as well as <clears throat> the uh, intergenerational trauma that this can cause, uh, leading to everything from higher A scores and lower um. Life expectancy moving forward. So, what are we doing as a state to try to help address this uh, besides looking at data and numbers? You know, as mentioned at the very beginning about the amazing work that Anchorage has done regarding the vaccine team and looking at vaccine equity and trying to include communities, what diversity and what equity looks like in Anchorage is really, really different than what it looks like in Unalaska, where you're dealing with mainly seafood vessels that are living and working in the Bering Sea. And so how do we recognize and respect the strength and diversity of what we're seeing across the state and being able to make sure that we're addressing equity, not just with a one-size-fits-all. And so as a result, we have both applied for this grant and received it from the CDC, thanks Jay and team, uh, and others uh, regarding uh, healthy and equitable communities. And so this is expanding services to promote and mitigate COVID-19 amongst high-risk groups, promoting health and data collection and sharing, building workforce capacity and coalitions, Collaborate with partners statewide to, root, uh, to address root causes and enhance implementation with other healthy Alaskan strategies with a focus on, on high-risk, underserved Alaskans. Again, this is very much meant to be community-driven rather than state-driven because what makes sense in Bethel makes very different sense than what makes sense in Ketchikan, and so this is a highly community-driven uh, exercise. So, a lot of times I get asked, uh, What are you doing specifically at the state? But it's very much trying to uh, coordinate and to promote health equity in, in local regions so that it has the best ability to be useful, meaningful, and collaborate with local community partners who have the best understanding on the ground of what this looks like. So, here's a bunch more details about that. Happy to provide more details if other people have other questions. Um, everything from strategic plans to helping to develop these coalitions uh, and additional resources and people in the communities uh, to be able to help to address inequities and help that we're seeing over forward. I always like to kind of think about how we can make change and what are the key factors that are there. It's easy to always think it's that other person that needs to do it and then we'd all be fine. Um, But I I oftentimes think that to have any great change, and I really learned this actually from uh, actually Dr. Butler's work and the opioid epidemic, that to get any specific change, it doesn't just require policymakers or patients or providers, but it also requires the public. When I think about the public, I think about community organizations, I think about advocacy, I think about faith leaders, I think about school leaders, and it takes the press, it takes the ways that we're able to communicate in this space together. So engaging all five of those things, I think are needed to be able to move forward and to actually have locally driven and meaningful tools moving forward. As Dr. Butler already mentioned, you know, the Delta has really been surging and Alaska is being hit right now by the worst wave that we've ever had in the state with more hospitalizations, more deaths. And unfortunately, some of our hospitals really struggling with not having enough dialysis machines for people who need dialysis or almost running out of oxygen and us scrambling to try to transfer patients as people are running out of oxygen or having to change the nursing ratios in a way that we never had to. You know, as, as previously mentioned, I think having a moment to pause and thinking about the people we've lost, but I also uh, think about that the care that we used to be able to provide and kind of the grief and loss that our healthcare workers are going through and not being able to provide the standard of care that they have always, that they've come to this profession to do and had a hope and love and passion to do. And I think that, that they are grieving the loss of being able to care for the patients uh, in a way that they feel is it is right and is and is what it called them to their profession. And I think those two dual losses right now are really hitting Alaska incredibly hard uh, in a in a just morally impactful and I think um generationally impactful way. Again, vaccines are our tool out of here. And even from the beginning, Alaska data has shown that it's not really healthcare workers. I'm just a talking head on zoom it is friends and family who are trusted and so neighbors friends family church leaders that is who is trusted in making a difference in this effort so every single one of us makes a huge role in this in talking to your neighbor talking to your friend talking to your congregation uh, as we heard earlier this morning As Dr. Butler mentioned, you know, the chance of you resulting in the hospitalization or death just plummets if you're vaccinated compared to those uh, who are unvaccinated. So this came from an MMWR. The bottom line is fully vaccinated individuals. The uh, black line is unvaccinated individuals. That blue line down the middle is when Delta became 50% of the cases. I mean, Delta is different and Delta is deadly and Delta is here and it's spreading easily. And you can see once Delta became 50% of the cases, cases skyrocketed, hospitalizations went up and deaths went up. But you can see while cases went up in the un, in the vaccinated as well as unvaccinated, they went up faster in the unvaccinated, deaths significantly went up as well as hospitalizations in the unvaccinated group. But as as Dr. Butler also mentioned with Colin Pollock, we're all in this together and particularly thinking of our elders, those who are compromised. Our two risk factors for being sick from COVID are how well our body can fight it off and if it's been trained by vaccination and how much COVID spreading we don't have a lot of COVID spreading. We're not going to have a lot of COVID hospitalizations and deaths. And so that's why we all need to do our part to kind of help bring it down. And immediately that's masking, distancing, but long-term that is vaccination so that we can minimize going through these waves over and over and over again. In the meantime, it's incredibly important. We keep taking care of ourselves. This is how we take care of our mental and physical health, particularly in Alaska, things like vitamin D particularly comes from sustainable foods like salmon. uh, And uh, we don't get it this time of year with the sun. And so making sure that we're eating a well-balanced diet, staying connected, staying active. There was a great, I think it's actually in the next slide. Yeah. There was a great article that came out, a paper came out recently that showed physical activity, regardless of your body weight, age, underlying health factors for COVID-19, reduce your chance of resulting in hospitalization or ICU care from COVID-19. So regardless of your underlying health factors today, you can also get outside and exercise and take care of your physical health and be physically active to help minimize your risk of COVID-19. We've been partnering with others who really uh, see the benefit of, of vaccination. So Alaska State Chamber really clearly sees that healthy people means a healthy economy. And so they put together this Give AK a Shot, it's about to run out and ends at the end of this month. So this is kind of the last time to do it uh, and encouraging people to consider uh, enrolling. You can win $49,000 uh, or a scholarship if this is the beginning of your series to get vaccinated. And it's been great to see the stories of people who've made the decision from across Alaska at this point to get vaccinated. We're here with seven days a week with interpretation services, with a live person who can answer your questions. Uh, As Dr. Butler mentioned again, he's vaccinated, I'm vaccinated. I did beat him because I uh, get the honor of seeing patients in the emergency department. Uh, And because of that, I have also made the decision to get a booster dose uh, because of just how much COVID I'm seeing in the emergency department on a regular basis. Booster doses are available across the state as of today. So the ACIP meeting met yesterday. So anyone who is six months out from either the Moderna or their Pfizer, or if they're two months out from their J&J particularly if they're at high risk, should get vaccinated. So there's a lot of nuances to it, a lot of mixing and matching. Feel free to call our line. But in general, if you're two months out from a and j if you're six months out from a Moderna or Pfizer, consider getting a booster shot and they're out and available now, particularly depending on your risk factors. And everyone over 65, guys, Definitely. (laughs) Um, so, and also mentioned, don't forget your flu shot. We are seeing an uptake in flu and I appreciate, uh, Valerie Davidson mentioning that at the beginning and RSV, man, we're seeing a lot of RSV in these babies right now. We also saw in Alaska that when we started to take COVID-19 mitigation precautions, masking and distancing, we were having tons of RSV and it just plummeted like RSV disappeared. And so the same tools that work with COVID work with RSV And I am concerned about our pediatric capacity as we've got COVID, we've got full hospitals, and now we're starting to get RSV and we're starting to get flu. This could be a really, really tough winter for us if we don't work collectively together to slow the spread of these diseases. So, just like we're prepared for the winter, we learn to like, we don't just, you know, go to school. Well, my kid sometimes just goes to school and like, you know, Birkenstocks and a sweatshirt. Uh, we layer up when it's bad weather. And uh, right now it's bad weather for COVID uh, in the state of Alaska. So, really encouraging people to layer up with their mitigation, vaccination making sure that they're wearing a mask, they're distancing, doing as much as you possibly can outside uh, to help protect you, your family, your loved ones, and others. So thank you all for the opportunity to be here and to speak and uh, looking forward to the discussion.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Zink. That was absolutely the kind of information that we need. And we will have time to talk with you a little later uh, in questions and answers and uh, in our closing statements. Dr. Andrasek Research the key to finding successful solutions to ending COVID. Dr. Andrasek's area of expertise is not one that we hear a lot about in clinical health psychology. So, Dr. Andrasek, please share.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of the organizers and everyone in the Black Caucus for inviting me to this important session. And it is a real honor to share uh, the stage with all of these, excuse me, amazing panelists. Uh, I just wanna make sure that everyone can see me and hear me that we're we're good. Okay, great, great. So I am going to work to try to talk about the vaccines over the next uh, 10 minutes, give you a very, very quick overview of um, the COVID vaccines. And just to let you know, I've been working in vaccine research now for over 11 years with the HIV Vaccine Trials Network. And you know, having worked on the HIV vaccine for over a decade, I have to say that all of us who work in HIV wish that the HIV virus was as straightforward as the COVID uh, vaccine uh, or the COVID virus or SARS-CoV-2 actually, the virus that causes COVID, uh, because we would be out of the the HIV pandemic already if we had the tools that we currently have for the COVID, um, uh, for COVID. So just to give you a quick overview of vaccines, because I want to make sure we're all on the same page when we're talking about vaccines. So vaccines work by teaching the body to recognize an invader, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. Basically, the vaccine sounds an alarm in the body, calling fighter cells, antibodies, which are part of our immune system, into action. And antibodies are natural proteins made by our body's immune system, and they're made in response to every unique type of disease that we get exposed to. So the cold you had last winter, the chicken pox you had as a child, all of these, uh, you know, create antibodies, which help us recognize the foreign invaders uh, if they come into the body again. And you know, I just wanna underscore that making antibodies is a natural response that our bodies do all the time. So vaccines are able to build on this natural process by teaching the body to recognize new diseases and helping our body learn uh, what these new threats look like so we can begin making immune responses that help us uh, provide protection. And so uh, the vaccines do multiple things. You know, the gold standard, I think, for vaccines is to prevent infection. And what we're seeing with the COVID-19 vaccines is that they do indeed have some Uh, prevention of infection. But what they really do, what they're best at is preventing disease and preventing severe disease progression. So preventing hospitalization uh, and preventing death. That's what these COVID-19 vaccines, all the ones that have received an emergency use authorization, are really good at doing. And I really think it's important to understand that all of the COVID-19 vaccines went through a rigorous pathway for the development of vaccines. So, you know, beginning with animal trials and then, you know, once it's, uh, these vaccine products are seen as safe and potentially, you know, effective, um, in humans because they show some efficacy in animals, then we go to human trials and usually, you know, in, in my life as, you know, a vaccine trialist, um, you know, we see a phase one trial that has about 30 to 50 people in it, and these are first in humans. So we're really looking at safety. Is this safe in humans? And usually um, you are recruiting healthy Um, people uh, just to see if the vaccine is safe and if humans tolerate it and then what generally happens is that you know you go through the phase one trial which can take you know a year or a couple of years and then you have the data and then you have to once you have the data and you show okay it's safe in humans we need to move to a phase two, then you have to get all the money together to go to a phase two. You have to get all your sites together, get all the products in place and plan the multitude of um, things that need to be in place to go to phase two. Phase two is usually about a thousand people, maybe a couple hundred people. And this is really looking at dosing, again, focus on safety, safety is always the primary focus across all of these trials, but looking at dosing and looking at you know, what dose can produce an immune response um, in humans. And then once the phase two trials are done, again, they could take a year or a couple of years. And then once you have the data, it can take you a couple more years to get everything in place and have the money to do a phase three. Now the phase three trials are what most of us heard about when we were listening to the news. The phase three trials, also known as efficacy trials, usually have about 5,000 people in them, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And these are really looking at safety again, and whether or not you see an immune response that shows that the vaccine is efficacious. And so again, this whole process can take years because e- between each step, you need to plan and get the money together. The thing that happened with the COVID vaccines, which was so incredible, is that we had resources we had money the us government put a lot of money into these trials so while the phase 1 trials were doing we were already planning for phase 2 and phase 3 getting the clinical research sites set making sure they had products you know which is a dangerous thing if you don't have any money cuz you could lose all that money if your phase 1 data comes back and says okay you know we can't go forward with this fortunately you know everything fell in place and these vaccines as many of my previous panelists have stated were you know effective and safe beyond any of our hopes you know we, it was really incredible to see the efficacy and the safety of these products and the fact that the US government invested money allowed us to do phase one, phase two, phase three in parallel, always planning, always being ready to go as soon as we had the data that said, yes, this is good, you can go to the next phase. The other thing that helped us move quickly is that the phase three efficacy trials, remember I said, usually we have about 5,000 people in an efficacy trial. Each one of these phase three trials had 30 to 40,000 people in them. And when you have that many people, you are it's much quicker to see differences between the control group or the placebo group and the vaccine arm. So what do I mean by that? Well, all of these trials went through what we consider the gold standard of clinical trial research. And that is randomized, double-blind, and controlled trials. And in these trials, people are randomly assigned to receive either the vaccine or control, also known as a placebo. And then we follow people over time to see how many people um, are infected in each group. You know, because in each group, despite, despite, you know, being advised to avoid protection, practice caution, by virtue of living in a society, working, shopping, etc., people are going to be at risk for infection. And at the end, we compare the number of infected people in each group. And each one of these groups is double-blinded. And that basically means that the people who join the study don't know if they're getting the vaccine or the placebo. And the people at our clinical research sites don't know who's getting the vaccine or the placebo. There is an independent data safety and monitoring board that is always in the background looking at the data. They get all the data, looking at the data to make sure that everything is going well and that safety is um, safety standards are met. And you might remember early on in the vaccine trials, we had a couple of study stops. Johnson & Johnson and Novavax had a safety stop. And, you know, there was all this media hype about, oh my gosh, are these vaccines safe? But from a clinical trial perspective, this shows that our safety precautions and the safety protocols that we have in place are working. Because anytime there's any sort of adverse event, we have to make sure that it's not vaccine related. So in order to do that, we stop all recruitment in the trials, stop all vaccine administration until the data safety and monitoring board can look at the data and can discern that the, the adverse event that was um, reported is not related to the vaccine. And that was the case in both of the safety pauses that we saw and uh, the the, um, studies then were up and running. And I think it's really important to note these vaccines are not experimental. They have gone through the um, clinical trial process and the mRNA vaccines, although they are new technology, they have been around for almost 20 years. And Kismikia Corbett here and Barney Graham have shepherded through the Vaccine Research Center at NIH the mrna technology you know so i always like to say i feel like these vaccines should be called you know the the kismikia and barney vaccines because these are the heroes behind the vaccine the, the pfizer and the moderna vaccine and both the mrna technology has been used In Ebola vaccines, it is currently being used in RSV and HIV vaccine trials. So it is, and it's a technology that's really amazing. It allows for the rapid development of vaccines. So it's really perfect for new diseases like COVID, Nineteen, And, um, you know, is one of the reasons why Moderna and Pfizer were sort of first out of the gate. So what does an mRNA vaccine do? I mean, this is really incredible and exciting um, advances in science. For the first time, we are able to deliver a recipe to our immune system. So the mRNA enters the human muscle cell and basically once it's in the cell and it enters the outside of the cell uh it doesn't go into the nucleus of the cell um, or anything like that so it has no potential to change your genetic structure at all so it enters the outside of the muscle cell and delivers instructions to make the spike protein, which is what is on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2. So then the muscle cells begin making this spike protein and the immune system sees the spike protein as an invader and begins the immune response. Um, So that when you are then, when your body does come in contact with SARS-CoV-2, your body is already set and ready to go, your army, your military is up and running and ready to go. And I think it's really important to know that these vaccines were tested on people that look like me and that are BIPOC individuals. Our team worked really hard to ensure that Black, Indigenous, and people of color were in these vaccine trials. And across our COVID-19 trials, our CoVPN sites, we had 47% BIPOC individuals. We also had a high representation of older adults and people with pre-existing conditions, two groups that are also disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And in terms of side effects or what are also known as adverse events, the most common uh, side effects that we hear across the billions of doses now that have been given out worldwide is that you know, you generally have local um, uh, side effects, or that's at the site of injection, and these include a sore arm, maybe a rash, uh, hives, um, and these generally go away in less than forty-eight hours, uh, and you can use over-the-counter medication. We also have heard of some systemic side effects, or you know, full-body side effects. Those are headaches. Uh, fatigue or tiredness, fevers, rashes, hives. And so, for those of you who've had flu or shingles vaccines, your side effects for COVID are most likely going to look a lot like what you had for shingles and the flu. And then, you know, we've heard a lot about severe um, allergic reactions or something called anaphylaxis. And it is true that we have seen rare. Cases of anaphylaxis, and that's why many um, vaccination sites have a protocol now that you know have to wait and be observed for 15 minutes because most of the allergic reactions that we've seen, the large majority occur within the first 15 minutes. So they've got uh, the epipens there and interventions to make sure that if there is uh, a severe allergic reaction that it's not gonna be fatal. And then for those people who have a history of severe um, allergic reactions or anaphylaxis, you may be asked to wait for 30 minutes. But I think the critical point here is, is that most people with histories of allergies or anaphylaxis have received the vaccine with no issue. You may have also heard of vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia mouthful we just call it vit uh we have seen rare cases of vit after the j vaccine and basically what vit is is it's characterized by blood clots um and and this could be in the legs um in the abdomen uh the brain and also um with low levels of platelets and platelets are you know you the um, blood cells in your body that help stop bleeding, and again, I want to stress that this is rare. After receiving Johnson and Johnson, we've seen um, a little more than 16 cases now over the out of the millions of uh, vaccinated people. So the rate is 0.0002 percent most of these cases have been in women aged 18 to 49 so i think you know you have choices if you're a woman 18 to 49 you have a history of blood clots uh, you, uh, your BMI indicates that you um, are obese or are, are a heavy smoker, this is something you may want to consider and, and maybe the mRNA vaccines would be a better choice for you. Um, I do wanna say that of the cases that we've seen, you know, the, this um, section down here are the um, symptoms related to VIT. And if the VIT is caught early, Um, It is very treatable and not fatal, although there have been a few fatalities that has been largely because of untreated symptoms. I think it's also important to talk about myocarditis. We've heard a lot about myocarditis in young people. And myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. And this happens when the immune system reacts to an infection or some other trigger. And I think it's really critical to point out that um, in August, the American Academy of Pediatrics Um, uh, had an article that reported that myocarditis is 37 times higher in children who get infected with SARS-CoV-2 or have COVID. And then if you look at um, the children 12 to um, 17 who have gotten the vaccine, we see very rare events of myocarditis. It's most often in males and it often follows the um, second dose. So again, um, if it's caught early, you know, people, if your child has shortness of breath, or uh, sustained fatigue, those kinds of things. It's easily treated by anti-inflammatory medications and rest. And I just wanna talk a little bit about the booster shots. As you know, the FDA just approved a booster shot for J and J. And I think the booster shot often gets confused with an additional dose. And additional doses are for individuals who are moderately or severely immunocompromised because often, people who are immunocompromised do not build enough or any protection against the virus. Um, And a booster dose is an extra dose for those who did build enough protection, but as some of my panelists indicated earlier, you know may the, that protection is waning so currently you know you uh, your the FDA recommends getting a booster at least 6 months after um Moderna or Pfizer um, have pre-existing conditions um so and then for J&J uh because the J&J vaccine had lower efficacy initially uh that has now um been indicated as needing as, um, a booster dose. And I just want to say this is uh, these are busy, this is a busy slide, but this comes from the University of Maryland Center for Vaccine Development and Global Health. And there is no denial, I see, here you can see when the vaccine w- was became available, had the vaccine not become available, this is where we would be with our cases. If we had 50% lower vaccination rate across the US, this is where we would be and this is where we actually are. And without the vaccines, it's estimated that we'd have over 1.2 million more hospitalizations and about 300,000 more deaths. And it's real association, the oldest black medical association in the country, All four of the historically Black medical uh, colleges and universities, the National Hispanic Medical Association, and many, many other medical organizations have all stated that vaccines are a critical tool for eliminating the impact of COVID on our communities. And I just wanna say we have been developing materials throughout the um, pandemic and they're all available in this free um, uh, Dropbox. We've got infographics, ask an expert social media posts educational videos and again those are available to everyone these are some examples of our um uh social media or our infographics excuse me we have a booster faq that we're finalizing now and we're also going to be including something on our site that talks about vaccine deaths because Currently, the VAERS and VSAFE programs in the CDC are reporting 36,000 deaths. And again, in data, you have to, you know, in, in science, you have to report any um, reported adverse event. And so each one of those adverse events has to be, um, you know, explored to see if they are indeed vaccine related. And so far, there've only been for vaccine-related deaths, so we'll be um, uh, having uh, some informational um, graphics and so forth to discuss that so that people can understand um, how that is uh, playing out. That's it for me. I'll I'll turn it over to Thank you for listening in to Betty Davis African-American Summit on COVID-19 Part 2. Alaska Black Caucus.